Welcome to Treks and Sci-Fi. This is episode 415 for Sunday, December 16th, 2012. What's happening, everybody? This is Mark Daniels from the Great Pacific Northwest. I'm M5 on the Treks and Sci-Fi forum, and I'll be your guest host this weekend. Today, I'm going to take a look at one of my favorite science fiction movies. It's the 1969 Jerry Anderson classic, Journey to the Far Side of the Sun. I know it's an old movie, but I like it. And I know some of you out there remember this movie and like it as well. But before I get into the movie, I'd like to thank Rico for giving me this opportunity to do another guest spot on his podcast. Thank you, Rico. You are the man. Right now, I'm going to play the main title theme to the movie. So sit back, relax, and enjoy some really good music. And I'll be back with some movie information, and then we'll get into the movie. was the main title theme to the movie. Now let's get into some movie information. Journey to the Far Side of the Sun, or Doppelganger as it was known in Europe, was released October 8, 1969 in the UK and August 27, 1969 in the US. It had a running time of 101 minutes. It was directed by Robert Parrish. It was written and produced by Jerry and Sylvia Anderson. The screenplay was by Jerry Anderson, Sylvia Anderson, and Donald James. The music was composed and conducted by Barry Gray. The visual effects were done by Derek Meddings. It was produced at 21st Century Cinema. It was distributed by the Rank Organization in the UK and Universal Pictures in the US. And here's the cast, starting with Roy Thinnes as Colonel Glenn Ross, Ian Hendry as Dr. John Kane. Patrick Waymark as Jason Webb, 
Lynn Loring as Sharon Ross, Lonnie von Freudel as Lisa Hartman, George Soule as Mark Newman, Ed Bishop as David Poulsen, and Herbert Lom as Dr. Kurt Hassler. And now let's get into the movie. Here's the premise. Traveling through the solar system in 2069, an unmanned sun probe locates a planet that lies in the same orbital path as Earth, but is positioned on the opposite side of the sun. The movie starts off at Eurosec Space Center in Portugal. Eurosec stands for European Space Exploration Council. Dr. Hassler and an associate enter a high security area to review the flight data from the sun probe. Dr. Hassler returns home and enters his bathroom, which doubles as a photo lab. He then removes his left eye, which is really a camera, and develops the film, then hooks the eye up to the projector, and all of the top secret material is projected on the wall in the bathroom. So straight up, we got a spy. The next scene is of Jason Webb, who's the Eurosec director, and Dr. John Kane, who's the Sun Pro project manager, head for a meeting with the Eurosec Council to tell them of a discovery of a new planet in our solar system. Gentlemen, gentlemen, please. The 67th meeting of the European Space Exploration Council is now in session. This is a momentous occasion for our organization. Sun Probe 1 was an unqualified success. We had some spectacular results. However, this meeting is called to consider one single result, startling in its implications. Dr. John Kane, the project director. Gentlemen, an unmanned satellite is naturally limited in the transmission of information. Part of Sun Probe's equipment was a cine camera set to take one picture a minute for the duration of the flight. Roll the film, please. The far side of the sun, over 100 million miles from Earth, hidden from the eyes of radio telescopes by the sun itself. Now, at this point in the flight, a strange thing happened. The gyro mechanisms aboard were influenced by another magnetic field and the capsule slowly started to rotate. Now, if you watch your screens carefully, you'll see that the capsule cine camera was panned off the sun towards the force that was attracting it. That force, gentlemen, was the gravitational pull of another planet. Now, I'm going to hold the film here to show you the first complete photographic evidence of a new planet. Hold and zoom. A new planet in our solar system. Thank you. Photographic evidence is only part of the story. Instruments aboard the capsule report that it is in the same orbit as Earth, but directly on the opposite side of the sun. Orbital speed, precisely the same as ours, is the reason it has remained undetected. What information do we have from the other systems on board? Not enough. Which brings me to the purpose of this meeting. A proposal from the chair that we should mount a manned flight to the new planet. Jason Webb and Dr. Kane meet after the council meeting. Jason tells him that the council has rejected his proposal. Strike one. NASA representative David Polson stops by to talk to Jason. Jason tries to convince David Polson on the idea of NASA funding part of his manned mission to the new planet. 
Jason thinks if he can get NASA on board, Eurosec will follow. Jason also tells him about the security problems at Eurosec. David Paulson tells him, we all have our own problems, and it's a no-go. Strike two. Dr. Kane turns in his resignation. Strike three. Jason tells his secretary to have Lisa Hartman and Mark Newman, who are Eurosec security, to meet him at his home later that evening. Jason wants to discuss the security leak at Eurosec. Come in. I want to run down on the current security position. Defensively? Mm. We've housed all findings, computer programs, and visual data from Sun Probe 1 in Vault 2. Access? Restricted. To whom? Yourself, John Kane, and Mark. And offensively? I've already reported the near certainty of a security leak re-splashdown. And so? We picked up radio signals again this morning and got a bearing. Why not a fix? Listen, Jason, that information is coded and radioed out in a two-second transmission. Mm. And there are 86,400 seconds in a day. All right. You made your point. But when are you going to nail him? What? When are you going to nail him? Depends on how much rope we give him. All right. Lisa, that access restriction must be widened. To whom? Hassler. Dr. Hassler. You're serving up information on a plate to our prime suspect. That's my responsibility. Your responsibility is this. If he shows his hand, I don't want an arrest. Understood? Understood. Mark Newman catches Dr. Hessler viewing the stolen material in his photo lab and shoots him dead. Now Jason has proof of a security leak, a dead Dr. Hessler and an eyeball camper. Jason believes another world power may know of the existence of the new planet and is planning a manned mission. Now NASA's ready to deal. Jason calls back Dr. Kane into the project. NASA has one provision. America's most experienced astronaut, Colonel Glenn Ross, must be on this mission. After all, he has been to Mars twice. Enter Colonel Ross and his wife Sharon. And right off, you notice that she's got the wandering eye. She's already given another man the eyeball. At a dinner party for Colonel Ross and his wife, Jason tells Dr. Kane that he's going on the mission. Surprise! It's only mine. I've been thinking, John, hmm? about the second astronaut to Captain Ross. Well, Borgen is the obvious choice. Or Mitchell. If we want just an astronaut, I agree. But it occurs to me that we need someone more flexible. Well, they're trained to be. I mean, in terms of knowledge. Someone who could take full advantage of any findings on the new planet, however bizarre and unusual they happen to be. You mean an astrophysicist? Me? I doesn't appeal to you. You must be joking. To grow on you. Colonel Ross and Dr. Kane inspect their rocket and begin their training for the mission. Jason Webb pushes Dr. Kane to his limits during this training. Colonel Ross and his wife have marital problems. He wants a child. She doesn't. She's also taking birth control. He finds the birth control, confronts her, and slaps her. They could have left this part out of the movie, far as I'm concerned. Anyway, 
Lisa Hartman steps in as a new love interest and warns Colonel Ross about Jason's plan to move the launch date up for weeks. Colonel Ross doesn't believe Dr. Kane is ready. He protests, and Jason moves up the launch date two weeks. Colonel Ross and Dr. Kane have heart-lung kidney interfaces grafted to their wrists. The heart-lung kidney machine will sedate the astronauts and take care of their bodily functions during their three-week journey to the new planet. Now their training is complete, and our astronauts are ready for launch. Ten seconds, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Ignition. Flight control, this is Phoenix. We have ignition. I say again, we have ignition. themselves up to the heart, kidney, lung machines and prepare to sleep all the way to the new planet. We are now 45 minutes into the movie. It's a good time to take a break. I'm going to play uh, my favorite piece of music from the movie. This piece is called Sleeping Astronauts and it's played during the time the astronauts are asleep journeying to the new planet. So enjoy this music and when I get back we'll join Colonel Ross and Dr. Kane in orbit around the new planet.
Colonel Ross and Dr. Kane wake up three weeks later in orbit around the new planet. They do a scan of the new planet. They find an atmosphere, vegetation, but no sign of life. They decide to make a landing and board their landing ship called the Dove, which looks similar to the space plane that Colonel Steve Austin crashed in at the beginning of the Six Million Dollar Man. Anyway, as Colonel Ross and Dr. Kane descend towards the surface of the planet, they encounter an electrical storm. They lose control of their ship and crash on the new planet. They are totally screwed. Their ship and all their equipment are totally destroyed. They are now marooned on the planet. A spotlight appears in the distance, and the spotlight finds the wreckage of their ship and then spots them. An alien being is lowered from the strange craft. Colonel Ross tries to fend off the alien, but the alien overpowers him and hoists him up to his ship. Rescue, Ulan Barter. I will get your friend. Colonel Ross and Dr. Kane have crash landed back on Earth, and they are rescued by Mongolian Air Sea Rescue and taken back to Eurosec. I just got one question. Why does a landlocked nation like Mongolia have air sea rescue? Who knows? Anyway, Jason Webb is hot. He wants to know why they've turned back. They've only been gone three weeks. Dr. Kane is in intensive care and clinging to life. Colonel Ross is okay, but he's being interrogated by Mark Newman and Lisa Hartman. Mark, I want a total security blackout on news of their return till we find out what the devil's gone wrong. What about that Mongolian rescue team? I had a word with my opposite number in the Soviet Academy of Space Science. They've agreed to cooperate. Does the clampdown include Mrs. Ross? No. Tell her to stand by. Pontini! No one, except authorized personnel, are to see any of the results till all the computers have been completely rechecked. You're responsible. It's my department. Well? Dr. Kane is still conscious. And Colonel Ross? Apart from the shock and superficial burning located in Is the... he fit? I don't want details. I only want to know one thing. Is he fit for questioning? Yes.
I have to go through with this? It's your job. Before we get started, this is the interrogation room, not the debriefing center. That's right. Sit down, please. Why did you turn back? We did not turn back. You continue to claim that you completed your mission? We reached the new planet, yes. You agree that to fly to the planet and return is a journey of six weeks? Yes. You accept that you have, in fact, returned three weeks after launching? Well, I uh, can't explain that. All I can say is that... You completed the electronic survey? Yes. Of the new planet? Yes. And returned to Earth? We crashed. On Earth? On the planet. You're here, on Earth. To the planet and back in three weeks. I don't know. There's a lot I can't explain. You left Earth. Three weeks later, you return. You crashed. It takes six weeks to travel to the new planet and return. You were gone three weeks. So you turned back. We did not turn back. Why? 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 I'm sending Ross home. You won't get any more out of him today. The interrogation leaves us with two possibilities. One, Ross aborted the mission and turned back. If that was the case, he'd deny it for obvious reasons. Two, Ross genuinely believes he made the journey to the new planet. And he is as surprised as we are that when he landed, he found himself back on Earth. Colonel Ross is released from the hospital to the custody of his wife. Immediately, he starts to notice things. He, on the way home, he notices that the guy is driving, driving on the wrong side of the road. The light switch in their bedroom is on the wrong wall. The labels in his bathroom and his identification cards are all printed in reverse. Colonel Ross's wife is scared, so she calls Eurosec and reports him as acting strange. Eurosec sends a team to pick him up. They drug him and take him back to Eurosec for observation. At Eurosec, Colonel Ross claims that everything is reversed. They give him some really good drugs and make him relive the crash over and over and over. They still get the same answers as they did before, though. Dr. Kane dies while in intensive care. Colonel Ross is now alone, and while looking into a mirror, Colonel Ross comes up with his Mirror Earth Theory. I'm sorry I'm late. I was detained at the medical center. Come and sit down. What I have to say to you is very important. No, Jason, you sit down. Now, you've checked me, interrogated me, you've looked into my brain and you've found out nothing. I want you to sit down and listen to me. I'm listening. Now, what I'm going to tell you is bizarre, weird. But it's the only theory that fits the facts. I propose a complete duplication of matter. A situation where every single atom, every molecule here is duplicated here, except that it's in reverse. Now, when I left Earth to travel to the new planet, another man left the new planet at precisely the same time to travel to Earth. 
Another Colonel Ross. The man you know as Colonel Ross is on the other planet standing in an identical, except reversed, room, talking to an identical Jason Webb who's sitting in an identical chair, rubbing his hands together at this exact moment. Look here. Now, what do you see? Go on. You see the mirrored images of Jason Webb and Glenn Ross. There are now four people in this room. Two Jason Webbs, two Glenn Rosses. What I'm trying to say is these two planets have a physical connection. One is the mirrored image of the other. But unlike the reflection in the mirror, they both exist. For every person on one planet, there is a double on the other. Don't you understand, until a few days ago, you and I had never met. Are you trying to tell me that you don't know any of the people here? Your wife? Lisa? Newman? Only their doppelgangers. Their what? Doppelgangers. Doubles. If you want a literal translation, the mirrored images of themselves. I think I'd better get you a drink. All right, I know how it sounds. You think of anything better? I wish to God I could. When I got your call, Dr. Pontini had just completed a post-mortem on John Kane. And? Kane's internal organs were found to be on the opposite side from normal. My normal, that is. It was all there on the computer readout when you had your electronic medicals. I assumed wrongly that it was a fault. Lesson number one, never distrust a computer. So you see, your theory holds up. It would seem I'm not the Jason Webb that you know, only an impish doppelganger. How do you do, Colonel Ross? It's only a theory. Well, it's the best you come up with, but we can't prove it till we've recovered the Phoenix. Well, if we're right, you realize your version of the dove won't be able to dock with the Phoenix. We'll have to reverse the controls and the electrical systems. Or does the polarity of electricity remain the same? Well, does it? If we're wrong, you do realize what would happen to you. Colonel Ross volunteers to go back to the Phoenix and retrieve the flight data recorder. Since the original space plane was destroyed in the crash, Eurosec constructs a new space plane to take Colonel Ross back up to the Phoenix. Colonel Ross rechristens it the Doppelganger. Unfortunately, it's an opposite space plane, and no one knows whether the electricity in its system flows the same direction as the electricity in the Phoenix. Colonel Ross boards the Doppelganger, lifts off, and heads for the Phoenix. As he approaches the docking bay, Colonel Ross noticed that the writing on the inside of the Phoenix is in the right direction. There are definitely two planets. When the doppelganger docks with the Phoenix, both ships receive massive damage. The flow of electricity is constant throughout the solar system. The two ships separate and head for the surface. The Phoenix burns up in the atmosphere while Colonel Ross plunges to the surface, controlled by Eurosec. Launch control from doppelganger. Jason, we were... There are two planets. 
There are definitely two identical. Doppelganger, say again, we lost your last trans... Jason, I'm not reading... Repeat. We lost your last transmission. Jason, I'm not reading you. Maybe you're reading me. The retros on the Phoenix have fired. I don't know why, but they've fired. I'm pulling out. I say again, there are definitely two planets. Identical, but reversed in some way. Launch control. If you're reading me, come in, please. Give him the automatic approach system. Dove now in automatic control. Roger. Yellow condition. All stations, stand by. This is Doppelganger to launch control. If you're reading me, come in, please. I pulled out of the Phoenix, extensive damage all systems. One thing that's not reversed is the polarity of electricity. Instruments indicate negative, still negative, positive, still positive. Phoenix re-entering. Is there a separate radar reading for the dark? No, sir. Re-entry speed. Speed 19,000 reducing. Second blip on screen. Could be the dark. Speed. Stand by. Speed 12,000 reducing. Controlled re-entry. As far as I can see, sir. Angler entry, fair. Launch control, cut automatic approach system. I say again, cut automatic approach system. Unable to affect landing at Eurosec. All vertical thrusters have... Maintain automatic approach system. We'll bring him right down the beam until he breaks contact with the final approach. Launch control, if you read me, cut automatic approach system. Unable to get off beam. Colonel Ross having no control of his ship crashes into the space center, and then ricochets into a parked rocket. The explosion destroys the entire complex. And I must tell you, the explosions on this part of the movie are awesome. Anyway, many decades later, Jason Webb in retirement tells his nurse the story of the duplicate planet. She leaves his side for just a few moments when he sees a reflection in the mirror. He reaches out to his reflection and then hurls himself into the mirror, killing himself. And that's the end of the movie. Now it's time for movie trivia. Journey to the Far Side of the Sun was Jerry Anderson's first live-action feature. Jerry Anderson, who perceived a likeness to fellow American actor Paul Newman, cast Roy Thinnes as the male lead after viewing his performance in the television series The Invaders. Lynn Loring was Roy Thinnes' real wife at the time of the filming. Ed Bishop replaced Peter Dinelli because Dinley looked too much like Patrick Waymark, which might confuse audiences. The Phoenix spacecraft's power plant is depicted as having been manufactured by Rolls-Royce. Patrick Waymark's character complains of heart trouble early in the film. Ironically, 
Waymark really did have a bad heart and died the following year. Many of the sets, costumes, vehicles, location, music, and even cast members were reused in Jerry Anderson's TV series, UFO. If you look closely into the screen of the medical technician number two during the launch sequence, you'll see a familiar face. Doctor Who fans should recognize him. The reflection in the screen is of Nicholas Courtney. Courtney played Brigadier General Lathbridge Stewart in the series Doctor Who. And my last piece of trivia, remember the guy that came down out of the, out of the ship and rescued him? Uh, Mongolian Air Sea Rescue? His name was Alun Barter. Well, Alun Barter is the capital of Mongolia. And that's all I have for movie trivia. So here are my comments on the movie. First of all, I have to let you know that this movie has a special place in my heart. My oldest sister took me to see this movie for my sixth birthday, and it was the first movie I ever saw at a movie theater. So I will remember this movie for the rest of my life. So anyway, I have the 2008 DVD release, and it's a great DVD, but it doesn't have any bonus material or trailers, so that's kind of a bummer. But the picture and sound quality are excellent. I hope they transfer this movie to Blu-ray someday, because I would really like to see this movie in Blu-ray. It's a solid science fiction movie. Uh, it has a great storyline, uh, great characters. Uh, the visual effects are awesome. I love all the miniature work, all the models in this movie, and the explosions are awesome. No CG in this movie. This is all practical effects. They do not make movies like this anymore. And uh, as far as the cast, I think they did a great job of casting the movie. The actors did a great job. Um, my favorite part of the movie is uh, the music. The music in this movie is awesome. Uh, Barry Gray's score is incredible. As you know, my favorite piece of music from this movie is Sleeping Astronauts. That's my probably favorite part of the whole movie is that song. It's so it's soothing to me, and I had to put it into the podcast somehow. On a scale from 1 to 10, I'll give this movie an 8.5 out of 10. If you haven't seen it, check it out, man. You will not be undersold. Just go ahead and buy it and watch it. It's a great movie. And that's it for Journey to the Far Side of the Sun. I hope you all enjoyed it. Before I sign off, I'd like to thank Rico again for the opportunity to do a guest spot on his podcast. Thank you for inspiring me and others to do guest spots and others to start their own podcast. Thank you, Rico, for everything you do. I'd also like to thank everyone who took the time to listen to me today. If you haven't seen this movie, please pick it up and check it out. You will not be disappointed. I'm going to end the podcast today with some more music from the movie. This piece of music is called Traitor in the Lab, and it's shown at the beginning of the movie when Dr. Hassler is developing the film that he stole from Eurosec. And uh, that's it. Um, take care, everybody, and have a very Merry Christmas. This is M5, signing off.